Welcome everybody to the Continuous Coach Podcast. Darshan and I are very excited to get started again. We've been on a hiatus as we redefine what we are trying to do and what our mission is here with the podcast. We started this podcast in a pandemic when we had loads of time. As we've gotten back to normal, and if you've gotten back to normal, we've redefined what our mission is and what our goals are, and we'll begin to start posting regularly every two weeks. Also, we started a website that will have loads of content and videos and, and blogs and everything that we can give you. It will also be posted to pretty weekly. Thank you very much again for sticking with us, for listening. We're very excited to bring you today's episode with Dave Smart, the legendary coach from Carleton University. You know, looking at hockey a little bit, like your kid plays hockey. Did you was hockey something that you maintained throughout life, or was it ever part of your athletic kind of career? Yeah, well, I played hockey. I didn't start basketball until I was sixteen, so I played hockey, okay. like triple A hockey, till I was fifteen. Then I stopped for basketball because you you get to a point where you know you're not going anywhere with it, and then you start uh, doing things that you like doing, like trying new things. So so I started playing basketball then. Um, but yeah, so then. Then when they got got to the age for it, I we put them in it, and they they like they love it. My oldest loves it. My youngest, he's really good at it, but I don't know how much he loves it. He's just he he's he plays it because he's really good, and he's really good because he's always on the ice with kids three years older than him. But I'm not sure he'll keep playing. Is your youngest still playing basketball as well? I remember uh, my son played against your son in basketball a couple of years ago. Yeah, he's he's still he he loves basketball. He's uh, I don't know if you would have he, – he's only eight, or he just turned nine. Yeah, my son. Uh, he's nine, will turn ten in November. So he was yeah, – uh, you were the – he was on the Guardians, I believe, my kid plays for uh, yeah. what's West yeah. – what now is like West Ottawa. West Ottawa, yeah. right? You speak to yeah. Learn, but yeah. Yeah. So, so. – um, but yeah, his, his basketball is sort of his thing, like that he likes. I'd say he's probably – I don't know, it's close between basketball and hockey what he's best at, but it, but he likes basketball. He really likes basketball. Yeah. Has it been hard on him with the uh, with the school gyms not being open or given kind of uh, your uh, ability to get courts and things through CBL, was he able to get out there and shoot and stuff or just kind of outdoors? Yeah, or? I mean, he, we do a lot of stuff outdoors, and, and uh, it's been good. I, I, it hasn't been terrible. It, it hasn't been ideal, but uh, but he, he's he's played a lot. You know, we we've we've made do, and uh, with the older brother, it's helped. Now, does, how many kids do you have? I have three, yeah, but my oldest is uh my oldest is the one that I was just speaking about, and uh, oh, my okay. other two play hockey. My daughter plays uh played Renette last year, just hockey. He's my oldest. We're from the states. We moved up here a couple of years ago, and he was playing hockey in the states, and just just didn't like it. And uh, right. he he would. It was so funny when he was a kid, Dave. I would have, I'd have the, I'm a big Celtics fan. I'd have the Celtics game on, and he'd hear the feet on the court, and would come running from upstairs or downstairs or whatever yeah. just to watch, right? It's, and it's the only sport, even lacrosse, which he loves. Basketball is the only sport he's still able to sit down from the beginning to the end and watch, and he, you know, he just, he loves yeah, same, it. Same, same with my, my youngest. Now he's, so he's a 2011, right? Yeah, 2011, yeah. 
Yeah, so Gabe, Gabe's a 12, and, and my oldest is a 9. Now, are the, you've got a daughter, and what's the third, boy or girl? A uh, boy. My middle my middle child's a boy. Yeah, he's uh, hockey. We, we all play lacrosse. It's it's kind of a, probably much like yourself, a bit of a rite of passage in the family when you when you, right. when you get up. Um, but uh, yeah, my, 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 my middle child is a uh, uh, hockey player, a lacrosse player, and he wants to try football this so year. So where, where does he play football. hockey? We were in Stittsville, but we just moved to Carp. So this year he'll start with West Carlton. This year will be his first year in West Carlton. Is that that's still Silver Seven and stuff like that, right? It would be Silver Sevens. Uh, he won't try out for Silver Sevens this year. Uh, this will be his first year outside of IP. So he'll try okay. just uh, regular, uh, you know, novice. I don't level. think there is. I don't think there is first year novice. Like my little guy, he played yeah. up in his first year novice on the on the Sting team, but. There were the they and then they had then he had to stay at the same level last year because they had a level of competitive for him, but there like there is no competitive level for that first year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's four on four, which I'm super a uh, big proponent of small sided games. I love the switch they made. I, I think it's four before. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I, everybody else can play, and I, I but that's because everybody wants to see their kids play five on five. Like it's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's the development is is incredible. It's incredible. Like and and the goalie development is off the charts. Off so what? Why hasn't youth basketball uh, moved? I know they talked about it a couple of years ago. Why haven't they made that move yet? I, again, because I think there's so many fights as to what age they should do it at, and and what what it like. Uh, basketball, it's it's such a fight between competitive and developmental, and 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 how important competitiveness is in the development of athletes, you know, so it's just not as hockey Canada has a lot of holes. Um, and most of their holes are based on wanting to be control freaks, but basketball Canada have their holes in that it's just, it's very renegade. I mean, it's, you know, like my, my 11 year old, when their team was in, in, or we're all nine, they play, we played in the Ontario basketball association or Eastern Ontario Basketball Association. And then we went to Toronto in the, C, the, the CB, CBL or CBL um, league. And in one, it had to be equal time, five on, five off, horn at four. And then the other, it was just go out and play. One, if if you played zone, everybody was freaking out. The other, do whatever you want. And neither group will accept that there's positives to negatives to each, you know, so, so we got, we did get both. We got the best of both worlds. And and when we had a really good team, we still have a really good team at that 09 group. Um, but, you know, they all got to play and there was no zone. We, we killed everybody, but it was good because everybody got to play. Then we went to Toronto and it, you just played when you deserve to play. So the kids, like you go to practice and you go, you're not going to play if you're not good enough. I get your nine, but you got to compete. Like part of, playing elite if you don't want to play elite then play house league but if you want to play competitive part of competitive even at nine is fighting for your spot it's not like there's not other places to play if you just want to play all the time and that was good to have the best of both worlds because these kids who don't have that they think they're entitled to positions they're not entitled to and it's the shock to their system most of them can't recover from like Kids on my, my even my, my oldest son, he'd say, well, I'd like to play point. I go, well, get better. <laughs> 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 like, 
you know, like it's, it's just hard work. And, and, and it's not, he's not the only one I said it to. It's like, it's it, like we would say to the parents, we're going to Toronto. There are no equal playing time rules. Here's where I see your son, how many minutes I see your son getting a game. If you don't want to come, no, no worries. Yeah. I think that that's the big thing though, Dave, right? A lot of coaches miss that communication before, right? They don't, they don't communicate that openly. Then they get to the tournament and it's, well, why didn't my kid play or why is this, you know, it's like, well, it wasn't communicated before, right? That's a big mistake that a lot of coaches make. And, and like, it costs a lot of money to go away. So tell people, and if, they may not like it at the time, but what are they going to say? Like it's, a, it's, it is what it is. We're, and, and, but the problem with those the Toronto thing is, and, and again, it was good for us because we figured out how to play against it, but these kids are nine and they're playing zone and you're going like, I'm not saying they should be playing like NBA man, but they shouldn't be just sitting. Like the biggest thing is you shouldn't be putting the big kid in the middle to just stand there. Yeah. Because when he gets older, if he's still the first of all, if he doesn't grow, he's going to have to figure out how to cover. Yeah. yeah. And if he does grow and he's 6'10, he's still going to have to cover because they're going to ball screen him 50 times in a game if he's any good. Yeah. So putting him there, like I, I just sort of said, I, I'm not saying I would yell if you're, if you switch to screen, like that's zone, like, but, but you got to get these kids moving around. Like you can't, can't just sit in the zone like that. Yeah. And, I mean, Every good zone, right, is based on man-to-man principles anyway. So if you don't have that core principle, you're you're in trouble, right? Right, right. But really, you're killing one or two kids. The kid, the kids you think you're you're helping, you're killing because you're hot, you're hiding them. But at some point, they want to play, and they're not they're not going to be hidden at the next level. Like, like I mean, I always say to anybody six nine or bigger at Carlton, it's like, listen, you're going to have to be able to cover a ball screen. Or you're going to have to be so good that we will change what we do defensively because we need your offense. But the way the game's rough now, it's impossible to be that good offensively unless you're Giannis. So we had a tough year, started? obviously, with COVID around the city for you know, youth level sports or sports in general. <laughs> yes, I just want to ask you about you know your uh, the youth program that you do run um, and the, the year we've had. What kind of adjustments have you had to make to keep that going? locally here well i mean they've been doing some things outside when it, when you couldn't get in the gym but then as soon as we can get in the gym even with 10 10 uh, limit of 10 we because we have similar limitations with the carlton guys and the carlton women we know what it looks like in terms of skill development what we can do what we can't do what 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 will help the kids we've done a ton of films film sessions as well trying to help the kids understand sort of team concepts even though you can't do any team concepts or you couldn't until recently any any team concepts for about a year so that you get them in a position where they're they're gaining on people other people in the same position but not losing too much to falling too far behind kids who have gone through this age group before them without these restrictions so there, there's limits to what you can do but we we've been very lucky we we've got good coaches plus all our student athletes uh work with all these guys, uh, all these kids, and they, they run, they run the practices with them. So it's, it's pretty exciting for the young kids to be in the gym with the kids who are winning uh, university players who are winning national championships. Did your numbers stay roughly the same, or did you find that you lost some of the, uh, the kids during the course of the year? Uh, We didn't lose many. We lost a few kids who, 
who were very, very cautious about COVID, which is totally understandable. And, and uh, you know, um, most of those kids came back, have come back now that it's it's opened up a little bit. A couple haven't. And, and I think it's, I'm not sure that they haven't for good or they haven't until the fourth stream goes through. I mean, there's there's people who, who obviously don't take COVID very seriously. And there's people who, who are over the top in terms of how serious they take it. And, and I shouldn't say over the top. I mean, I, I stay somewhere in the middle because I feel like extremes in anything is is a problem. You know, like I, I, I think you have to respect the virus and we have to uh, have had to and have as much as we can for a year and a half. But on the other hand, there's a mental health issue and a physical health issue that, that comes into play where the kids, the kids got to get out. You can't, you can't take two years out of their lives. So you got to find a happy medium. And some people just are are you know they're they're very cautious and concerned about it so that they've almost taken a year and a half out of their lives and and i'm not sh- my personal opinion is you got to find somewhere in the middle yeah we had this discussion um last week with a yogi and trainer um in toronto and he was just saying you know what's the comfort level people are going to be coming back into uh his studio or just in sports in general is everyone going to be okay with the contact? Are they going to be shying away from that? Travel teams, are some families not going to want to do that? So we're all kind of going through that a little bit. Um, anyone who's coached as long as you have, and I know you said it before, coaching is your second love and your family is your are first. You, are, you, are you calling me old? Is that what you're doing? It seems like a subtle way to attack me. No, not at all. If anything, it's a compliment. You shouldn't be attacking people (laughs) in 2021. It's a real problem. Well, I mean, what I'm what I'm getting at here is you coached a long time, uh, you know, and and it began earlier on. But if you do it for a period of time, you you love it, right? Like anyone who's coached for enough and many years is something that becomes just like ingrained in you. And you're not coaching at the same level now and you've you transitioned away from that a little bit. So I just want to ask, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning, what excites you? Well, I mean, I still, I'm still very much involved with our men's and women's basketball team. I still do a ton of film with those, those uh, players. And I also go to, uh, I mean, I, I really go to almost as many practices as I did before, except half are with the men, half are with the women. I, I'm part of the coaches meetings. I'm working with the Sens, um, a decent amount and it's going to be more this year because it's it's been great working with dj i mean he's been wonderful to work with and then i coach my my kids and uh, you know people have asked since i changed into the different role whether i regret my decision and some ask it in, in a way where it's do you regret your decision or do you miss coaching and it's it, i don't regret the decision at all because i've loved every minute of being around my family more and being able to see my kids do the things that they like to do and help and coach them in it. Um, do I miss coaching? Definitely. I definitely miss coaching. I, 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 and I knew I would, but the, the lack of regret outweighs the missing coaching. But mm-hmm. if I could find a way to get back and have both, I would. I mean, it's, it's not like I don't miss the coaching. I, I, I do miss the coaching, but the, the, my life is still, it's still better than it was when I did something I loved in coaching because of the kids. Now, now they are getting older and um, they have stopped, have begun to stop listening to me. So, uh, you know, I may, I may need to get back to coaching and coaching people who actually will listen to what I say, but until it's, until it's clear, they're not going to listen to anything I say. I am happy where I am. (laughs) I'm talking with the senators and you have a, a very different role with them. Um, 
Could you tell us a little about what, you, what you're doing with the sense and, and with DJ? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I go in every day. I talk, I talk to the players. I, I have a pretty good relationship with a lot of the, a lot of the players on the team, and I talk and I work with the coaches. And I'm kind of a go-between. Without my, my thing is is very simple. I, I'm not about necessarily making friends. I'm more about people trusting me. You know, and I think from a coach perspective, it's not about being everybody's buddy. It's about, it's about people actually trusting you. So it's good for both groups in that DJ doesn't ask me what the players say to me because he knows I'm not going to tell them. And, and he knows that they need to be able to talk to someone about concerns and, and the, the players know I'm not going back to the coaches with anything. You know, and, and that that is going to be negative to them. I If I go back to the coach, to DJ about something, it's because, you know, it, it can help the player. You know, so so if a player is talking about something and I'll, and I'll say, well, like, we can fix this. We just have a conversation. You think I'd be working with DJ if you if I didn't think players could trust DJ? Let's just set up a meeting. And then we we set up a meeting. We sit down and, and hash it out and then. It generally what happens is the players come out with a, you know, in a way more comfortable situation that it might not be perfect, but in that it might not be the exact role that they, they want, but they at least know how they can get to the role they want and what their role is right now and what their expectations are. And it, it just makes it easier. So it, it's worked really well. And then I talked to DJ about where I think the leadership group is and, and what they're doing well, what they're not doing well and where the room is. You know, and, and how, how good the room is. And and a lot of the stuff I say to DJ, he already knows. It, it, like, I, I'm sure I give him stuff that he hasn't necessarily thought of because I've had years and years of experience, but not a ton. I mean, he's really good at what he does or I wouldn't be w- working with him. But it's just sometimes it's, it's a reminder. Sometimes it's a confirmation because, you know, like he gets it. Some people don't get it. I mean, he, I don't know how you guys feel about the world but in my general idiot way of looking at things you know there's there's if you take 100 percent of the teachers 10 percent are great 35 percent are really solid 35 percent are horrible but they're still teachers so they still walk into the room and have the same voice but you have to be smart enough to know that they're horrible so you can't listen to them well coaching business the difference with private business is the 35% who are horrible. And there's always that 35%. They always lose all their money. And it's a di- and that there's a bi- big transition between them. But in, in a lot of professions, there's no transition. That 35% who are terrible are still doing it. So when he can hear from someone who has no skin in the game, like I, I'm not getting paid enough to worry about just saying what he wants to hear. If I say stuff that he was thinking it, it's confirmation. If I say something that he hasn't thought about, then he thinks about it because he knows I'm not trying to better my position. It's just what I think and how I see it. You know, when, the, when, when they're, lo- if they're losing a lot, like how it should be handled. And he's, I mean, he's almost always like, I, I agree with him on 90% of the things he does or more. So it's not like, but when they start winning, like I, I talk about the concerns with winning. Sustainability is not easy. Like lots of people win one championship and they get put on a pedestal by anyone who wants to put them on a pedestal. Winning champ, like uh, really, like anyone, I'm not saying anyone can win it because some people can't, but even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. But if you're always top three, you're doing something right. And it's not easy. Like there are so many little things that can set 
set things back, it's incredible. And even good coaches, they just don't get it because they're around people who want to celebrate things you shouldn't be celebrating because it affects your position moving forward. Social media has made it tough, man. It, it has made it tough. So speaking of sustainability, I look at your program and it's obviously very successful. You know, lots of lots of national championships, lots of guys going off to play pro, all of that. But also your players are involved in the community. They're doing the right things off the court. Right. So when you first took over the program, those first couple formative years, what did you do to begin to establish that culture before you became the 15-time national champions? Well, I mean, again, I, I don't know if it would have happened if it wasn't for, you know, guys like John Addy, Andy Stewart, Terry Vallejo. Like those three guys, they, they were already in the program and they were understood what a great culture looked like. And, you know, if, if, you, if we didn't have those guys in the room, I might, my career might have lasted a year. You know, like it, because if if the coach is driving the culture, it just yeah. it's it's driven within the room. So so those guys, you know, if guys complained, there there were major confrontations, you know, that I wasn't even involved in, but I heard about years later. I mean, where guys didn't like the way we were doing things, and those guys just stepped in and said, "Leave, yeah. leave or change." And and that that you need those types of people. Who, who understand the big picture and, and committed to the team and not not necessarily themselves. And, and again, it, there's not there's not a lot of people out there. But once you build that culture, as long as you keep an eye on it, you can keep that culture because it, it's really if, if you get it to a level where that's an expectation, that that is how you have to act, even if you want to act a different way and even if you tend to act a different way. Because the culture is strong enough, you do it, you, you kind of hide it. You know, it's like my my 11-year-old, He, I guarantee he's on his on an, uh, on his device more than he's supposed to be. But, like, if he hears my, my, me walking up the stairs, he's, he's off it in a second. Well, it's kind of like that in the, in the team room. If there's a culture built, there's guys who will want to go against that culture. But as soon as they hear one of the coaches or one of the 10 players who – are fully bought in, walk in their direction, they stop it. So they have no credibility. Like they just come off as, like sooner or later they just stop doing it because there's no major voice. Like their their voice is so hidden, they realize it's a waste of time. Whereas if that voice becomes strong, it takes over the room. And so your program can be a tough place to play. Uh, and, and I mean that in, in a lot of different ways, but you know, mostly is your, your, your bench is so deep. And so players are competing hard in practice every day, but then a lot of times they're jumping into games where they're just they're just blowing people out. So in those times, how are you keeping them motivated for a uh, a, a long season in which a lot of the games are, are are 50, 30, 40 point wins? Yeah, I mean our our practices are hard, but they're fun for people who like to compete. Our place is an easy place to come if you're insanely competitive and you like hard work. Yeah. If you're lazy and you're not compet or you're not competitive, it is it is not a fun place to be. So I mean, and and in the recruiting, we make it very clear. Like if if if, if you don't want to work hard, this is not going to be fun. Like why would you do it? Go somewhere else, get on the floor, and understand you're not going to be expected to work hard. And it, it's more of a it's more about you playing the game as opposed to becoming a pro and winning 
you know, like we're not even trying, we don't even talk about winning national championships. We talk about each individual doing the things necessary to become high level pros, which means being team guys, knowing what roles look like, being insanely competitive and, and having a great work ethic. So, I mean, it, it's funny because the guys who come, they love it. It's it's not a hard place for them at all. I, I, 90% of them. The, the 10% who come and it is a hard place, it's because they didn't hear the if. They, they heard the, if you come, they heard the, you will be a pro if you do love hard work and you are super competitive. And they'll go, well, if I go to Carlton, I'll be a pro. No, not if you don't love hard work or if you aren't competitive. And if every time you lose, you are not like waiting till everybody leaves so you can get it back in the gym to get better at the things that caused you to lose, it's not going to be fun for you because you're just going to get your head handed to you every day. And the, the guys who are beating you are trying to catch up to someone ahead of them. It's, a, it's not an easy gap to, 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 uh, to lessen because they're trying to lessen their own gaps. And the, the top players are trying to lessen the gap between guys who are, who are trying to play in your league. So it, it's, it's really pretty cut and dry. They, the people in it either love it or they hate it. And we try to tell them in the recruiting process, but usually about – Six months in, I can take a kid aside and say, like, you clearly didn't. Like, did you hear what I said to you in the recruiting process? Well, yeah, you said this, but you're not, you don't want to do this. This is not a place for you. And most of the time when we have that talk, and we have that talk after first year a lot, I go, like, I will, I, you're a wonderful guy. I will help you go anywhere you want. This is not the place for you. It's, it, you're not having fun. I feel bad every day, but honestly, it's your fault because it's not like in the recruiting, I put you on a pedestal. I told you this is what it's going to be like, and you wanted to believe that's who you were. That's not who you were. I'll become that person. I don't believe you, and I will help you go somewhere else. And usually they go, coach, give me three, four months to prove it to you. And then they do. And some of those players have ended up being our best players, but their first year was a nightmare. But they understood that it, they didn't listen to what it was going to be like. They didn't want to leave it. So they were going to change and they changed and they were, they're wonderful. Like they, and they're huge parts of our program. And that's where people go, well, some guys don't play a lot right away. Well, they're not good enough. And some of them didn't hear the if. And then on the other hand, the same people who say, well, they don't play right away. They don't talk about the fact that when they do start playing, they generally are first team, second team all-stars the first year they play. Like everybody will yeah. say, Yasin Joseph didn't play his first two years. Well, he didn't get it and he knew he didn't get it. But no one talks about the fact that his first time touching the floor, he was a first team all-star his first year. Like he, when he was ready, he was ready. And it takes a certain type of person to want to be great at the end as opposed to be great right away. So, I mean, and you just talked about uh, being a competitor, but what does it mean to you to, to develop a competitor? And I know uh, you're looking as a, as, a, as a university coach for the competitor to already be in the player, right? But, you know, youth players, high school players, or developing those kids into competitors by the time they get to you, what does that mean to you? How do you recommend people develop that? Well, I mean, developing it comes from understanding it, you know, and again, how important team success is to you is a real indication of what you what's important to you in terms of a competitive your competitive nature see i i see kids who you know when their team wins and they normally score two or three goals a game but they score none but their team wins 
and the horn goes and they are off the bench jumping on their goalie and you you see them after the game and you and they are so excited and it's like Jimmy you, you you didn't score today we won that's the first thought in their mind they're nine ten years old we won and on the other side of it you see the kid who normally scores three goals and then his team wins and he scores one and he's the last guy off the bench and he's barely getting to the goalie and it's a soft tap on the pads that kid's not competitive that kid just wants to be the man and you're not going to be the man against really good teams like you you need to play a role like no matter how good you are you, there's only so many lebrons or kevin durant's at some point you need to to be able to play a role and want to play a role and want to win and like you can just see it in kids so easily when you've done it for 35 years you, you can tell the kids who who just are are in it for themselves and i mean it comes from the parents like it, it comes from the parents it's it's how much notoriety their kid gets and and what they're telling their kids you know like it's it, like for for me i'm when my son goes out and and i mean he he's capable there's days where he scores a, a ton of goals like at his level i don't say anything about it to him ever but man when he back checks and if he has three or four assists, he gets sick of the 20 minutes me gushing over it. Like, it, it, I, I, I can't talk enough. And I get their coaches to talk to him about how awesome he was doing those things. Because I, I, But again, it's weird because I do that with him. He doesn't really need it because he, he just wants to win. He doesn't care if he scores. And But I've, there's other situations where people are like that. And I, even when I played, like in university... I would lie in bed and go, like, what the hell is going on? Like, I, I, am I as angry as I should be that we lost? Because I, I, I'm leaving the country and scoring, and I don't feel like I'm as angry as I used to be that we lost. And am I becoming that guy? Am I becoming that guy who is walking on the floor and trying to score, and winning isn't the be-all and end-all to me like it should be? And, and it scared the crap out of me. You know, when, you know, thoughts about how to how to score, it's a fine line. Like, if you're the top scorer, you're expected to score. But if that's what your goal is, as opposed to winning, that's a problem. But if it's what you're doing in order to win, it's not a problem. Like, it, do you understand what I mean? And and I, I spent two years in university, like, panicking over whether I was as competitive as I've always been. And I don't think I ever stopped like being insanely competitive, but it scared me that figuring out ways to score was in my mind and trying to figure out whether that was for the betterment of the team or was that, that for the betterment of me. And, and those are thoughts that cross my mind all the time. And I think kids and parents go through that all the time. And it's, it's hard to change. It's changeable, but it's hard to change. So I guess I haven't really answered your question because I try to find kids who are just naturally competitive, but the kids who aren't, I try to make them understand that they're not Kevin Durant. They're not LeBron James. So if they want to play at the highest level, if even if they want to be selfish about this and make the most money they can make in this sport, they better be good at, at the little things, rebounding, defending, passing, spacing, understanding, like the scout, all those things. Cause if they're not, they're not, they're not going to get to play at the highest league. Cause they're not going to, they're not going to be a star in the highest league. They're going to, they're going to have to play at a lower league and accept the fact they're not ever going to be a star. 
or, or sorry, they're never they're never going to get paid what people at higher leagues are going to get paid. They're going to score a ton of points in lousy leagues. And there's so many guys there. They, I mean, you see on social media, Jimmy scored is averaging 21 points a game in Europe. It's like he's playing in fifth division. He's getting paid three dollars a game. Like it, 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 it's like I get that that we're making it seem like it's a because most the general public don't know what it really means, but he knows what it means. He knows the guy that he played against in U sport, but knows how to play a role and cares about winning is four leagues higher than him making $400,000 a year. He knows it, but he'd rather score points and puts things out on social media. Well, the power of the extra likes on social media has unfortunately changed a lot of things. Yes. Uh, so you go from playing to um, coaching a lot in high school and, and youth uh, youth uh, basketball, sorry. Um, do you still draw on those experiences and all those games and practices that you've run at the high school and youth level um, in your current roles and, and when you were the head coach at Carleton? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that's that's one of those things that people don't understand. Like the people who can't who don't sustain things don't understand is that they, they feel like they're moving forward with their development by thinking outside the box and then coaching outside the box. But the bottom line is if you want to be successful and win at, at a sustained level at the highest level, it all comes down to basics. It all comes down to fundamentals. It all comes down to, to how well you do simple things, your footwork, your spacing, your, your ability to pass, your ability to take in a game plan, your ability to move your feet, all these little things like, you know, straight zigzag, you know, covering the basketball, little things like that, just close out. So those things all ultimately are what win you games. And I, I find that a lot of coaches get caught up in, in overthinking the game. I mean, I, I was saying to one of my ex-players who, who coaches one of the teams in the CEPL, um, you know, how, how are you saying, how do you, how do you think we should get into the ball screen in this situation? I go, well, why don't you ask the guy you want coming off the ball screen? He said, what do you mean? I go, well, if he doesn't need any action to get into it, just start it. <laughs> like, just set it and do it until someone figures out a way to stop it. Like, you don't, you don't need to run cool action into it. Just do it and win. It's it's very simple. Now, if they have a guy who can who's going to make it tough for him to bring it up and not get worn out, then run some action to get that guy off of him, and then just do it. Like it, it's it's funny because we don't run much. We just read what other teams do to us and then play based on how how they want to defend our simple stuff. Like there's a place for the trickery, but. Sure, I get. I guess, and and do you want to keep your your athletes engaged? Sure, yes, you do. But there is a lot to be said to the Vince Lombardi. This is what we do. Figure out a way to stop it. And and it's not as simple as that because you can't just stop it. Like it's like this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna ball screen you in this spot. Figure out a way to stop it. Except that we know the nine ways you may try to stop it, and Every day or, or every nine days, we've spent 45 minutes on each one of those nine scenarios that we may see. So it's we go into games and we go, guys, this is what they do to this ball screen. This is their go to. So let's we'll practice it. We'll be prepared for their go to. If they do that, 
we just do this. If they don't do that, number one, they have very little confidence in what they're doing because it's not their go-to. They are changing because they are afraid of us. So first understand, they are panicking that this works because if it doesn't work, they have no answers. This is what I would do to us. So we will practice what they're likely going to do to us and we will practice what we are worst at attacking so that we can get better at it. If they do anything else, let's just make the right read the first time and they'll they'll panic. Guaranteed. It's like the team that plays 95% man and then they play us and go zone and we're up 18 and I call timeout and all I say in the timeout is, guys, remember why they went zone. They went zone because they are panicking. Not one of those guys know what they're doing in the zone because they've played 90% man this year. So do not panic thinking they're smarter than us because they are panicking because they are. this is their last hope. So let's <laughs> attack it like it's their last hope. And if we attack it well like it's their last hope, they will fold. And like again, I think it still comes back to basics, simple, simple basics. And so when you say, do you do the things that you did with the young kids? We do the things that we do with kids in camp. We, we have the coaches, our players coach the kids in camp and then say, why are you not, why are you not doing that? That, that is what's going to make you a better player. You know, the best players have the best footwork. The best players space the best. The best players close out the best. The best players cover the ball the best. I, I mean, uh, it's and and make no mistake, you fall into a trap of not doing that. I mean, I I used to run. I, we run camps, and long time ago, one of the kids uh, we were doing the the a drill, and I and I was doing the lecture, and we were just doing full court zigzag one on one, like nothing special. And I got up in front of all these seven, eight, nine year olds, and I go, kids, this is what we do every day in practice. These three players that I've brought to here, they do this every day in practice. Bold-faced lie. We probably did it once a month because I was too good for, for that kind of stuff in our university practices. But I, I was convincing them so that they would do it hard. We did it, and I thought nothing of it because I just used it to convince the kids that it would be something they <laughs> should work hard at. We finish it, and the seven-year-old comes over to me and goes, Coach, Coach, are you serious? Like, do you do this every day? Does Jimmy do this every day in practice? Because I'm going to do it every day. If you guys do it every day, I'm going to do it every day. And he goes, and he goes, is that why you guys are so good at covering the ball full court and, and covering the ball one-on-one -on -one in the half court? And I go, yeah, yeah, we do it every day, every day. And I walked away from it. And my assistant coach is there and I go, you know, the three months we've spent trying to figure out why we suck so badly at covering the ball and covering the ball in the full court. And we used to be so good at it. See that seven year old. He just gave me the reason why we stink compared to what we used to be. From now on, every day we are doing this every day. And six months later, we were back to being who we were as a defensive one-on-one -on -one team. And it's, it, I mean, we all fall into the trap because we think we're smarter than we are. We want to do more, but you can't build the pyramid without the base. For sure. And the technical tactical is a huge part of, of winning in any sport, but in a program like yours and the age groups that you've worked with, uh, what other pieces of the puzzle have you used from a coaching perspective, um, you know, for success? 
Well, I mean, there's so many things you have to do, but I mean, the biggest thing is to me, it's still like anything business, anything else, there has to be communication and there has to be trust. And it's not about anybody liking you. They, they, they have to trust you. And, and sometimes you just have to tell them the truth and you got to get the elephant out of the room. Like bad coaches just pretend it's not there. Like they pretend everything's good when clearly things aren't good. And, you know, I, I'm big on worst case scenario. Like this all feels good, but like what, where, where are we at with this kid and, and what, how could this affect our whole team and how does he feel? And like, do, do we need him to be bought in? And, and like it, it, the communication is so key and it's so poorly done because coaches just, they, in general, the average to bad coaches don't understand how the relationships should work. And I'm not saying I'm any, any expert on it. I'm just saying I've had some success. So I think I, I have a decent idea, but if, if you go watch us play the outside fan, they're sitting there going, this guy's yelling at people all the time. Why is he yelling at them? I would never send my kid to play there because he yells at them. As I say to people, when they ask me, I go, really? Because who did I yell at? Who is a first or second year player? What do you mean? I don't remember yelling at anybody. I don't think I, I can't even remember yelling at any of my first or second year players in a game, certainly, and very seldom in a practice, unless it's effort and it's been brought up multiple times. The guys, the guys I'm yelling at are fourth and fifth year players. They've been with me for some seven years when you, when you count club, but at least five years, all year, all summer, and they get to play the most minutes. My relationship with them is, in most cases, as their second father. That's who I am to them. Not the first, but their second father. In some cases, I am their first father. So I don't know how you are with your kids, but you care a ton about your kids, and sometimes you yell at your kids. Yeah. And sometimes, and a lot of the time, you have great, honest friendship conversations with your kids. But you, the relationship is at a point where you don't need to hold back. You can be honest on all levels. So when when people watch us play and they're going, well, he's screaming at a fifth-year guy. How does that not destroy that guy's leadership ability? No, that gives that guy his leadership ability. Because every player on the team knows me and that player are incredibly close. But by me holding him to a standard higher than everybody else, they also know that player is in their corner too. He's not one of the coaches. He's still one of the players. No matter how close the relationship is, he is still one of the players. And they can trust him. You watch teams that don't sustain stuff. Their main players and the coaches, they're hugging each other. They're talking in a way where the player does what he feels like doing. The player doesn't try three possessions and nothing is said. No, never embarrass him for not trying because he's he's your veteran guy. First of all, it's human nature to take shortcuts if you're allowed to do that. Second of all, the younger players get yelled at because they make mistakes. Well, they make mistakes because they haven't been taught it yet. The mistakes they make are because the leaders and the coaches suck. It's not because they suck. It's because the leaders suck and the coaches suck. Like it's, as I say to my fifth year guy, if you're going to whine because a first, second year player plays, a, plays ahead of you, look in the mirror, man. Like if all our fifth year guys stunk, 
then it would be my fault. It's because I can't coach. But that fifth-year guy, he used to stink, and now he's great. So obviously I can coach. And obviously he can learn. You have been in the same boat as him, but you aren't as good as a second-year player. This is on you, not me, and not anyone else but you. Because same standards, same world, this guy is way better than the second-year guy. The second-year guy doesn't have a chance against him. So, again, I try to help the first- and second-year guys through those years build a relationship, build a relationship of trust. And by third year, if they're going to play 25 minutes a game, they're going to get yelled at. The relationship has to grow fast if they're really good. If they're not really good, then we can gradually get to that point. But as soon as they're on the floor in third to fifth year, there's expectations way bigger than there are on first year guys. You walk into a bad coaching practice and who's he yelling at? All the bench players. It always amazes me. I go, why are you yelling at the guys you never play? <laughs> I don't get it. Like when the game starts and it's about winning and losing, you have coached and yelled at all the guys you won't put on the floor. All the guys who are going to win or lose the game for you, you're afraid to yell at them. You're afraid to get mad at them, but they're going to cost you the game. Like, I, I don't, I just don't get it. And, you know, like for me, when a freshman does something ridiculously bad, like even if it's not acceptable, like not trying, I just turn to the fifth year guy. I, I go, who's his leader? Like, what is going on here? What kind of leadership is this? Like, how are you not getting him to do these things? I'm not going to get mad at him because there should be a go between between me and him. You guys should be handling this stuff. Go, Jimmy, like, you do have to try harder because I, I can't get you on the floor if you don't, but you're being let down by your leaders. And if I'm so you're touching a lot on, on leadership and, and different, you know, older guys in the club or the team who are leaders. Can you define what a good leader is? Oh, jeez. I, I, I mean, it's different for every person. You got to stay within your personality. Right. I mean, it's it, to me, it's pretty easy. Stay within your personality. Care about them more than you care about yourself. Care about the team more than you care about your numbers. And work hard. If you do those things, you can make a million mistakes and people will follow you. The people follow people who care and work hard and will are about team as, as opposed to self. And what's a great leader? I mean, people say I'm a great leader because we've had great success. Do you understand how many million mistakes I've made? How many yeah. times I could get in trouble for things I've said that I would never get in trouble for. Like I, I, like someone might bring it up, but 70 guys who played for me would just attack and come to my support in a second. But I've made those mistakes. Make no mistake. I'm not sitting back saying, like, I haven't said something that I've gone, oh, shoot, that was too close to the line. But they don't care that I made that mistake because they know I care and would do anything for them. So they just want my true feelings, even if it's not necessarily the perfect thing to say at the time. Now, am I? do I try to say the right thing all the time? Sure, I do, but not at the expense of the truth. So again, what dictates a, a great leader? If you don't care, if you don't show you care, if you're not the hardest worker, if you don't, if you don't put the, the team ahead of yourself, you're, you're done because you're going to make a mistake and then everybody's going to turn on you. If you do, if you care at an insane amount, uh, insane level, the mistakes you can make, in fact, your mistakes end up like being a positive. 
because guys back you and 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 fight for you and it and it strengthens the team. Like you literally can make mistakes and it helps you because you care so much. So if I was going to give advice, don't read a book and try to go by the, what the book says. Care, care so much that people can't ignore the things you're saying. So, you know, I, uh, when I first heard about you, Dave, I was coaching, uh, in the state NCAA school, small division three school and the basketball coach there, uh, knew that my wife was Canadian and said, have you ever heard of Dave Smart? And I, I hadn't, I, he kind of took me down the rabbit hole. And I remember reading the story and I, I think I know the answer based on what you just said, but you know, as the story went in, in the article that I read, you had been offered a NCA job and you were, you know, possibly going to take it or had accepted it. And then you had a meeting with your players, and uh, in that meeting, you had a change of heart and decided to stay. Um, why is it? Why did you decide to stay when when players and coaches all around are chasing that NCAA lifestyle? Why did you decide to stay at Carleton in that moment? Because for me, it's it's a combination of loving what we have have at Carleton and what we had at Carleton and that culture and that life, and hating the way the NCAA operates. I mean, it is kind of a funny story because I did like it. The money was way better. I did accept the job. Like, called my my nephew was on the team. He was one of our two best players. I called my sister, told her the situation. She told me I I should take it. So I called him back, accepted the job. Well, set up a meeting with the team, called them back, accepted the job, and then went down to tell them. And I got down there, and they were all sitting there, and I looked around the room, and 80% of the guys in that room had come and listened to the if in the recruiting, cared, like sacrificed numbers, sacrificed notoriety from people who know nothing about the sport, like people who just give you credit because you do spectacular things or score a ton of points, like just accepted that they were going to get better as players and, and just worked every day. And I looked at them and I'm going, what am I doing? Like it, is twice as much money really worth walking away from something I'm never going to get again? If, if I walk away from this, this is, this is insane. Like these guys have run through a wall for me and I've run through a wall for them. I go, Wait, why am I leaving? So I'm looking at them and they're all sitting there uh, and I just lost it all. I just started screaming. I go, we've won two national championships and this is how we train in the summer. Are you kidding me? Like I, what, what, whose cottage are we going to this weekend? Because we're just going to win again next year. I go, I, this is ridiculous. I've watched it for long enough. If you guys aren't going to work harder, we're going to lose. This is ridiculous. Can we get some leadership out of the, out of you guys? And, and I, I'm going, this, I, I'm not going to accept this anymore. I went off for half an hour and, Aaron, and my, my nephew was one of our best players and one of our leaders. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Are you that arrogant? Like, what have we built here? And I go, I better hear a plan in the next three hours about what we're going to do to change our training and how we're going to respect the fact how hard it is to win. So I went up to my office and uh, I'm sitting there. And about two hours later, my phone rings. I'm waiting for someone to come up to give me their plan. And my sister, she goes, what's going on? I go, what do you mean? Well, Aaron canceled all his plans to come home this weekend and uh, and go to ironically a cottage because he said he has to stay in ottawa because they're training for for uh, two three four hours saturday and sunday and they got to get back on track and he's one of the guys who are running it and he can't come home and she's going, what? so he can't come home and i didn't tell him he couldn't come home he's just decided 
but you're not even their coach. I go, oh, sorry, forgot to call you back. Changed my mind when I was, <laughs> when I got down. She goes, what do you mean? And she goes, and then you lost it on them? I go, well, I had to find an excuse as to why I went down there in 17 meetings. Oh, I couldn't think of anything else. So I figured that was as good as any, because otherwise they'd be asking why I actually set that meeting. So, I mean, I had offers, but it never to a point where I was going to accept something. So, you know, Dave, uh, you know, I, I want to be conscious of your time and, and I thank you for all the, I mean, you've given a lot of great things for coaches that are listening to podcasts to take, whether they're coaching basketball or lacrosse or any other sport. We always wrap with one final question. We are on a journey here to become, uh, Darcy and I started this journey. We were contacting coaches just to get our own information and just to do some uh, professional development ourselves. And we said, why don't we just start recording these and give them to everybody, right? So with that goal in mind, who should we interview next? Who's someone that you think in the world of athletics we should talk to begin this uh, or to keep going with this journey? Well, I mean, from the basketball standpoint, from the hockey, I, I can give you a couple. I, I mean, I think if you can talk to DJ, it would be great. I think he gets it. Now, he's he's an NHL coach, so he's going to have to watch what he says more than I, I would have to watch sure. what I say. But he's still he's he's going to give you as much as as he can give you. And he'd be great. From a totally different perspective, but a real technical and real astute educational perspective of the game of basketball, Chris Oliver would be a great one. Like awesome. his basketball immersion is is really – I mean he, he sees things, I think, similar to me, but but does things differently. But, you know, it, it, I mean I'm very technical. I, I mean I play it down. I'm very technical about things when it comes to, to all sports, but uh, especially basketball. But I, I'm still – very much about the room is concerned about the room uh, as well and it's very important to him but he is his technical stuff and and what he's done with basketball immersion is off the charts it's really good really good stuff awesome awesome well you know dave thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it It was great to uh chat with you again and um you know have yourself a great day and good luck uh with the upcoming uh season hey dude thanks, i thanks asked a question really guys. quick uh can you tell me a quick mike kenny story that i can bug him about <laughs> You're just asking to get me in trouble. I moved to Canada, and and I had heard of Dave Smart before. But other than that, I don't think I had heard of a Canadian basketball coach. You know, I knew Steve Nash, uh, you know, a couple other guys, Andrew Wiggins, guys that were in the NBA. Jay Triano? Yeah, Jay Triano. I knew knew the name. Didn't know he was from Canada maybe until just right now, right? But guy from Syracuse, Paulin, right, who uh, who played uh, Greg Paulin. You know, it's a testament to, to how legendary of a coach that Dave Smart is, right, that he's known at least in coaching circles in the United States. And he's uh, – we talked about it on the podcast, but there's this great story of him, like, taking this NCAA job – going into the locker room it was so cool to finally be able to i mean i heard that story a long time ago and i was able to ask him what the and he talked about how his nephew was on the team and it was you know it was just um really really cool to converse with him you know his hard-lined approach of this is what you signed up for (laughs) right you came here to be elite you came here to become the best you came here to to grind and push yourself and not every player can do that. So that's not a great philosophy for every single coach to take away from this thing and say, that's what I'm going to do. Right. But when you establish that culture and that's not a culture you can establish in year five, 
like Dave talked about, how he had to go in there year one and establish that culture. And there was bumps in the road. It was hard, but it was uh, it was it was really really cool to 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 have the the conversation with him and, and to hear about you know his philosophy on coaching. Yeah, Dave Smart's. Um, I know we both agreed. Like, well, ironically, our first episode with Chris Byrne, right? And Chris said you guys yeah. should interview Dave Smart. I had myself at the time, like, oh, thanks, Chris. Like, I really appreciate you saying that because we're never going to get him on. <laughs> and I don't know how long it took me to get him on. I feel like I messaged him every few days or called him. It feels like for six months. I, I can't remember exactly when he came on compared to when I initially got in contact with him and how I got his number and whatever. It took a long time. And uh, that's fine. <laughs> that's part of it. Uh, you know, it was just. You hear his voice on the radio. You hear his stories about him. And the next thing you know, you're talking to the guy. And uh, I put a question to him, and he kind of like pushed back on it, right? And I was like, oh, man, this is Dave Smart. This is what he's like. <laughs> he's so intense. You could feel it in the call. Like, I just felt it, right? And uh, I'll be honest, I was a little intimidated talking to the guy. He's got a presence on a Zoom call with two strangers. Man, just Skype things call. he said. Skype, Skype. call. Make sure you Oops. give our sponsor the, the credit. That yeah, yeah. Give our sponsor, our non-sponsor. <laughs> Although maybe we could get a sponsorship out of Skype. That'd be kind of fun. But you talked about that yelling at his players, right? And then we're just, we just finished wrapping up, um, you know, John Meridian. And, of course, the way these things will come out uh, won't necessarily be in line. So the reason I want to say it is because Johnny was so much about how the establishing the relationships and the connections and, and making sure that you're coaching your players but not correcting them. Like you're providing them with perhaps uh, a positive as a correction, as opposed to yelling at them for a negative. And Dave said how he's like on his fifth year guys. And some people are like, Oh, I don't want my, my, my kid to play for you. Like never, you know? And he goes, really? Well, I never yell at the first and second year guys. If I'm yelling at the first and second year guys, cause the coaching sucks and the leadership sucks. <laughs> right. And I mean, it's so true. It is so true. And I thought to myself, as I prepared for a wrap at the beginning of the year uh, in junior B, like I was giving it to one of the second year players who decided to come and change after they were past the red line, the second period, and I was just yelling at them. And then I realized like, well, slow down here. It's not going to be productive, first of all. But why would he think it's a good idea to change at that point? Like who taught him that? How is this possible? Like it was a breakaway the other way and they didn't score or it was a two on one, right? But I go back to what Dave said, the coaching that person received and the leadership of what they've seen around lacrosse for that season, that point, told them that was okay, right? And so that's on me as a coach because you are part of building the leaders, right? But the way in which he was so hard on his older players and his better players, he said, yeah, but at the same time, I've built that relationship with them in first and second year, and they have a very clear understanding of what we're doing here and who I am. And sometimes I'm very close with them. I can be a second father or perhaps even a father figure to some of these people. So he was very hard on his players, but he also has a very strong connection with them before he applies that kind of pressure. Right. And so it's kind of like pulling in some of the old school coaching also with some of what, you know, John Merdine talked about and I don't want some mental performance, but having an understanding of, what you really have to be as a coach uh, in order to be successful. Yeah. And I think like, you know, when we first did the call, I wasn't intimidated or nervous, but it, it was intense for sure. 
And I didn't know if I wanted to interview him because I was like, you know what? I really want to push multi-sport athletes. I really want to push my beliefs, you know, multi-sport athletes, you know, getting down to kids' levels, talking to them, building culture, building positivity, building, you know, controlling all the things, right? And I didn't know if he aligned with that, that we did, because he didn't align with that. But then when he talked about how, like, that was to me the most impressive part is like, I, I can yell at these kids and I know it because I've built a relationship with them. Right. And I know what they can take and they can handle. And like, I remember when he said that, I remember thinking back to my dad telling me one day that if I ever played basketball, he would want me to play for Bobby Knight. And Bobby Knight, you know, throws chairs across the thing, screams at kids, loses his job because of it. But what my dad meant by that was I'm going to go to college and I'm going to have a guy who's there for me every single moment that I need that person there for me and is yes is going to be an intense as a coach but when you're intense as a coach you're just an intense person nobody's intense as a coach and then you know free-flowing guy you know like your personality comes out and you know Bobby Knight was just as intense about his academics and just as intense and that's what my dad meant about it I don't want to debate if I agree with that or not I would never want to play for Bobby Knight but you know that's what I thought of when I was listening to Dave talk is that here's a guy who, you know, maybe before the interview, I would say, sure, if you think you can be the first Canadian, you know, to play at Carleton and then go have a 20-year NBA career, go play for Dave Smart. Or if you want to play for, you know, the national team one day, go play for Dave Smart. But I don't think I would have said it until I had that conversation and I heard where those where that intensity comes from, where that can take him as a coach and take his players, you know, on and off the floor. Um, at one point in the interview, I asked him about what defines a good leader. And he said, great leader needs to care about others more than themselves and work hard. And he said that a couple of times in, in the interview. And so I, you know, hindsight, I regret asking it again. But he just talked about, like, what that looks like to, to be a leader in that sense. You know, you're more committed to the program than you are to your own success. Right? Like he talked about his own kid playing whatever it was, hugging his hockey. And um, he has a big game or whatever, and he doesn't say anything. Of course, two goals. Don't say a word. He backcheck and, and he, you know, broke up a two-on-one. He's all over him at the point where dad, he's like, Dad, okay, I get it. I know what you're trying to do. Just stop. <laughs> but he's trying to really say it's about working hard. It's about doing the little things. It's about not caring about yourself and knowing that, you care about everyone else so much more in yourself that they care about you even more. And then they give you more of themselves and then you're successful, right? As a group. And man, that's so powerful. It really is. He talked about when he coaches minor basketball, right? And he talks about how he struggles as a minor coach sometimes because if parents want equal play and parents want this and parents want that. And he's just like, I just want to coach kids and, you know, it's okay. He doesn't believe that every kid should play in every game and that like there's a place for you to be on a team and learn your role as a young kid. And and those are all things I think that that make or break you as, as a youth coach, you know, and, you know, I think that I took a lot from Dave as a, as a university coach. But what I what I think I really took from the conversation was OK as a minor coach to have the same level of expectations 
for your players and for your parents that you have at the university level, right? You have to treat them differently. You have to go about it differently. I believe in, in, in fair play at the youth level. So I disagree with that part of it, right? But it's okay to demand that your kids do all the little things and work with them on that and to have that expectation level. But you also have to realize that he said when we talked about the beginning, you might not have that relationship with those kids enough to really drive and grind them, right? So you've got to spend just as much time, and he talked about this, building the relationships with the kids and the families, you know, and making that that your message is there, you know? And and he talked about that a little bit with his own kids too, and what you were just saying is, yeah, I've got a great relationship with my son, and that's why I can do that, but sometimes I have to listen to him too, and I have to step off and not be coach and just be dad, you know? I love what he said about setting expectations with your parents at the competitive level. Uh, when you're coaching youth, you know, you're going to this that tournament, people have to know what the expectation is. And even going into a season, right? Like you're signing up for this, right? If if we're going to this tournament and I'm going to play, I got a starting five and I got a bench of two or three and the other kids who come down, I don't know, they play a few minutes, maybe in garbage time. They play at the end of a quarter of a bunch, right? Like, and it sounds say awful, but it's really a challenging thing to communicate. But you have to set the expectations so people know. Like I think the issues arise a lot of times when you don't have those expectations set. People don't know what to expect. And then all of a sudden, you know, what they had thought was gonna happen doesn't happen. And then they're upset. And then you gotta deal with all the whatever it looks like with executives and conversations and you know, emails from parents and all those fun things. But did you set the expectation? Did you tell them this is what it was going to be? Different, obviously, but, you know, at junior, I gave, I had a, an email I sent out and it just said, you know, if you ever want to discuss your your child's, because a lot of times they are still kids, right? You want to discuss their uh, social emotional needs. I'm happy to talk about that, but you will not talk about roster, playing time, position. Those aren't conversations that we're going to have between a parent and a coach. If it's something your child needs, mental health perspective, absolutely, don't hesitate. You know, doesn't mean I didn't hear a couple of those things, but I just told them not having this conversation, right? And uh, for the most part, there wasn't the same level of, I, I think, issues I've seen before uh, in teams I've been on, you know, and I think that the expectation was there and people knew that's what it was. And I mean, at the same time, I think like winning sometimes cures issues. <laughs> Right. Like if we had lost, let's say, eight more games, only won two or three, whatever it would have been, maybe I would have heard a lot more from people. But the fact that we had some success, I didn't hear as much. You could say that. But I also think it's about building some goodwill with with your parent group and and listening to them at times and also, you know, recognize them at other times. Like, you know, on Mother's Day, we had a game and and I was able to get um, uh, flowers from a local a shop here and all the players gave their, their a flower their mother and we lost that game so i can think of two players in particular who uh didn't play well and were very upset and you know didn't want to take their flower and give it to their mom who actually had left the arena so you know not all uh sunshine and, and roses haha but the the people who stayed and took pictures and 
you know, lots of them said thank you for that. And I think it helped build goodwill with with the parent group and with the families involved in the club, right? I'm getting a little bit off topic, I suppose, but at the end of the day is communicating to those around us in our teams what it is it means to be part of this team. And so, you know, I think Dave does that very well. And uh, I try to do it in, the, in those ways, right? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the last thing I'll say is is in that same vein, like, he also knows that being a great coach is being a continuous learner, but also challenging yourself. And I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, applaud him for being so open about the switch to to working with the Senators and, and his role there. You know, I thought that was, you know, fascinating stuff that I don't really need to recap. There's nothing that I want to point out that he said, but just the fact that Here's this internationally known basketball coach, you know, top 10 basketball coach in the world. I I don't know where he lies in that conversation, but who in retirement challenges himself to go work with a hockey organization. And he said, like, I I don't know anything about how I can't teach a guy what to do, but I can tell what's good and what's bad with your culture. And I can tell DJ and and be someone he can listen to. And that's an amazing example for for young coaches to to aspire to. You know, if you're at if you're at a high school. And your high school needs a basketball coach or needs a rugby coach or needs a girls lacrosse coach to coach the girls field team, coach it, you know, go and learn and immerse yourself in it, be an assistant coach and learn another sport, learn another way. And there's lots that you can take and grab from there. So I just think that's a great example. I think it speaks to like coaching mentorship, right? And, and uh, essentially that's what Dave is providing uh, to senators and to DJ is a voice, someone to bounce ideas off of, something completely different. You know, he had, does have a background in hockey as a, as a young person, but and I think he referenced before the call, he, he still plays pickup, but, you know, obviously not the same level of the guys who are either coaching or are playing in that team. But having this community of learning and exchange of ideas and the ability to listen um, to other people is at the end of the day, I think what he's kind of exemplifying in that situation and I would say also with what he's doing as a basketball coach still, like he said to him, essentially we asked the question, like, do you miss it? Right. And he goes, I miss it every day. I miss it. Yeah. But I don't miss not being at home. <laughs> I don't miss not being with my kids. But then he also said, like, I'm still coaching a ton. Like I'm doing the thing with the senators. And then I go to practice every day with the men and the women's team. Right. So he's kind of taken that top down approach with a variety of programs and he's probably improving, of course, as a coach in doing that. But he's providing that mentorship uh, to other people and to allow them to to be great, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us. Um, you know, wish you all the best in in the Ravens' seasons around the corner, uh, times two, and then uh, the Senators have had a great off season here in the summer of 2022. And Mark, as a Bruins fan, is just doesn't even care, but. As a somewhat long-suffering Senators fan, I remember texting a friend this summer, geez, I don't know, like, what's next? Is there anything else good that could happen? And it was next thing, and it was next thing. <laughs> so pretty excited about the Sen season. I might watch hockey this year for the first time in a while uh, and and uh, try and fall a little more closely. Um, but besides that, uh, do take a listen to today's conversation, and thank you for listening to me rambling about the Ottawa Senators. Yeah, and I'll just uh, quickly add here at the end that if you want to watch hockey on a regular basis, just become a Bruins fan. They're always interesting and good, you know, so there you go. Bye.